The last week of Jesus' life was dark and tumultuous. His final days saw him cleanse the temple in a fit of holy rage. Zeal for your house consumed me, he said. It saw him debate with the Sadducees over the doctrine of the resurrection and repeatedly spar with the scribes and the Pharisees in the temple over questions of the law and over his identity and authority. And on his last full day in Jerusalem, which would be the Wednesday of Holy Week, the turmoil that had been brewing since Sunday, it came to a head as Jesus stood before the crowds in the temple courts and he pronounced upon the scribes and the Pharisees the curse and the woe of God, calling them hypocrites and sons of hell, blind guides and whitewashed tombs, a brood of vipers who had the blood of the prophets on their hands. And then it says that he wept over the unbelief of Jerusalem. When Jesus departed Jerusalem that Wednesday evening, he and his disciples crossed over the Kidron Valley and ascended the Mount of Olives to the east of the city. And upon the Mount of Olives, his disciples turned around and they were admiring the temple as it shone in all of its gilded splendor against the setting sun. And so Jesus called his disciples and he gathered them together and he told them to stop gazing in admiration at that God-forsaken building. Luke 21.6, as for these things that you see, the days will come when not one will be left here, not one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This must have piqued their interest, for they immediately asked him when this destruction would take place, and what would be his sign of his coming at the end of the age, thinking in their minds, surely the destruction of the temple and the day of the Lord would mark one and the same event. Surely the destruction of the temple meant the end of the world. So when will these things be, the destruction of the temple? And what is your sign of the coming at the end of the age? And to the disciples, that was one event. And for Jesus, those were two bookends with 2,000 years now between. In response to their question, Jesus uttered dark words of false prophets and false messiahs of wars and rumors of wars, of nation rising against nation and kingdom against kingdom, of earthquakes and famines and plagues, of tribulation and apostasy, of the persecution and the perseverance of the saints beginning in their own day. The destruction of Jerusalem occurred in A.D. 70. That's what's in view in Luke 21 Verses 20 to 24. So beginning in their own day and then continuing on to the very end of the age when Christ would return. Luke 21 verse 25. And there will be signs in sun and moon and stars. And on the earth distress of nations in perplexity because of the roaring of the sea and the waves. People fainting with fear and with foreboding of what is coming upon the world. For the powers of the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in a cloud with power and great glory. 
Now when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Two days later, Jesus hung bloodied, torn, and forsaken upon a Roman cross. The Lamb of God slain to purchase for God people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Three days after that, The Son of God rose in triumph over the grave, and 40 days after that, He ascended through the clouds to the right hand of the throne of God. Now, turn your minds from the Gospels, that's where we've been, Matthew 24, Luke 21, Mark 13, turn your mind now to Revelation, which picks up where the Gospels left off. In Revelation chapter 4, John saw in heaven a throne and him who sits upon the throne, crowned in glory and clothed in light and worshipped by four living creatures and the 24 elders. In Revelation 5, John saw in the right hand of him who sits upon the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals. No one but a slaughtered yet standing lamb who is the crucified and risen Christ. And John watches as the Lamb walks right up to the throne, takes the scroll out of the right hand of Him who sits on the throne, and as all of heaven cries out in worship, He begins to break the seven seals, executing the sovereign will of God for the destiny of the world. And as the Lamb breaks the first four of those seals, four horsemen are summoned to the throne of God. And each are granted authority And they are sent forth to wreak havoc upon the world of men. And as these four horsemen disperse to the four corners of the earth and ride over the face of the earth, nation rises against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there are wars and rumors of wars. There are famines and plagues and bloodshed and death. In other words, there is great tribulation. Just as Jesus told the disciples there would be. But if we compare Jesus' discourse with the disciples on the Mount of Olives, Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, if we compare that discourse with what we studied last week from Revelation 6, 1 to 8, and the first four seals, you'll notice that there were two major elements of Jesus' discourse, which we haven't seen yet in Revelation 6. The persecution of the saints and the return of Christ in judgment amidst great cosmic signs. So it should not surprise us that when we return to Revelation 6 and pick up where we left off last week in verse 9, that we find with the fifth and the sixth seals, the martyrs crying out for vengeance and the shaking of the heavens and the earth at the revelation of the wrath of the Lamb. So verse 9, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of those, under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. And they cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? 
Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So when the fifth seal is broken, John sees beneath the altar, that is the golden altar of incense, which is before the throne of God, on which the 24 elders pour out their bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints, chapter 5, verse 8. Beneath this golden altar, the souls of the saints who remained faithful unto death while testifying to the word of God and the gospel of Christ, the souls of the saints reside. This is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Jesus on the Mount of Olives when he told his disciples, okay, all of one, all but one of whom, namely John, would die for their testimony to the gospel Jesus told them this, Luke 21, verses 12 to 19. But before all this, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer. For I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. And some of you, they will be put put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives." And so it has been throughout this age, from the first coming to the second coming, just as there have been throughout this age, nation rising against nation, and wars and rumors of wars, and famines and plagues and bloodshed and death, so have the saints been hated and persecuted and betrayed and slaughtered for their testimony to Christ. Truly the servant is not greater than his master. As the world treated Christ, so it will treat us. This is the background of what Jesus means when he says, take up your cross and follow me. So what I want to do is to make five observations of this text. What are we to take away from the saints The martyrs beneath the altar. Five observations. Number one, I want you to notice the reason for their death. John says that they were slain or slaughtered. It's the same word that describes the death of the lamb in Revelation 5. And that they were slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they had borne. In other words, they were killed for their confession. Now last week I ended with the question of why the saints suffer alongside the rest of the world when the four horsemen ride throughout the earth and execute God's judgments upon the earth. Why are we the forgiven, justified, adopted children of God subject to the same conquests, the same wars, the same famines, the same plagues, the same bloodshed, the same death, the same cancers, the same miseries, the same sorrows as the rest of the world 
If the sorrows of the rest of the world is God's judgment upon the world, and our judgment has already been taken away in Christ being nailed to the cross, why do we suffer along with the rest of the world during this age? Because make no mistake, two things are true. Number one, we suffer. Paul says in Romans 8, we are a sheep to be slaughtered all the day long. And through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So you will suffer. But number two, your suffering is not God's judgment upon you. It is not God's judgment upon you if you are in Christ. For your judgment has been taken away fully and finally in the death of Jesus. We are not sharers in the world's judgment, but we are sharers in the world's sufferings in order that we may be heralds to the world of the hope that is in Christ. But not everyone, beloved, not even most, will receive your testimony as you testify and bear witness to the Word of God in this age. Just be aware of that. You suffer by the will of God, not as judgment, but by His plan, in order that out of your suffering, you may testify to the glory of Christ and show the world that to live is Christ and to die is gain. But as you testify to the greatness of the gospel of Jesus and to the treasure that Christ is and to the glory that is set before you, most people are going to hate you for it. They will hate you for your testimony to Jesus. And many saints will die for that testimony. Which is why in the midst of Jesus' prediction of persecution and the perseverance of the saints in the last days, he also prophesies right in the middle of it, Mark, Matthew 24, 14, he prophesies that the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to the nations and then the end will come. That's an interesting phrase. And then the end will come. Revelation 6 says, all of the saints who will be killed for their testimony must be killed before the end will come. Then the end will come. When every martyr has died by the sovereign plan of God, then the end will come. And Jesus says, the gospel must be taken to all the world, then the end will come, which tells us that the two, our persecution and world evangelization, go hand in hand in this age, doesn't it? There can be no evangelization of the world without the persecution and martyrdom of the church. In fact, it is the evangelization of the world that brings about the martyrdom of the church. Because the world, by and large, will hate your testimony. The world does not hate silent Christians. Perhaps the reason why you've never been persecuted for your faith is that you've never spoken about your faith. The reason they die is because they bore testimony to the word of God. Second, I want you to notice the design of their death. This is not accidental. These believers are not accidentally dying. 
God was not looking away just for a second, attending to something over here, and then suddenly some of his children have died. This is the predestined plan of God. In verse 11, each martyred saint is given a white robe and told to rest a while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. So from all eternity, God established a set number of saints who would die for their confession to Christ and the end will not come until that number has been reached. No more and no less. Which gives great confidence to the would-be missionary, doesn't it? Let me tell you how. This means that you can go into the most dangerous places on earth and proclaim the gospel in full confidence that nothing can or will befall you which has not been predestined and planned by your loving Father from all eternity. Even if you die for your faith, you will not die the victim of fate or of some tyrant. You will die rather a victor by the eternal plan of God. You know how Stonewall Jackson, the, the great Confederate general in the Civil War, earned his nickname? You ever heard that story? In the first battle of Bull Run, when the Confederate lines were faltering under heavy Union fire, Jackson and his Virginian brigade held firm and provided vital reinforcements. And another officer in the Confederate army was, was watching Jackson and his unit, and he shouted to his men, Look, there is Jackson standing like a stone wall. Let us determine to die here, and we will conquer. Rally behind the Virginians. And the name stuck. So how did Stonewall Jackson have the faith of a stone wall? How did he have the courage and steadfastness of the stone wall? Well, he was a devout Presbyterian. And he believed fiercely in the sovereignty of God over all things. He said that his faith, quote, teaches me to feel as safe in battle as in bed, end quote. Jackson knew that he could not by worrying add one hour to his life, Matthew 6, 27, that God had ordained his days and the hour and manner of his death from all eternity, Psalm 139, 16, and if it was God's will that he should die in battle, then nothing in heaven or on earth would change that, and so he just sat like a stone wall atop his horse while cannon fire and bullets whizzed past his head. The very same truths, by the way, like that which we find in verse 11, can give missionaries the very same courage and calm in the midst of their battle. Dave and Larry can go into Nicaragua knowing, whatever will happen to me, up in these villages where the gospel's never been named, whatever happens to me was written down by my father before worlds began, held in his hand. What's the result of that kind of faith? You knock on every door you find. For that matter, these truths can carry you through any suffering 
and through any battle of this life. How much do you trust God? You trust Him like this? And if so, why are you so worried and anxious? Third truth. I want you to notice their comfort in death. Notice where they are. Between their death and their resurrection, their resurrection at the return of Christ on the last day, their souls are in the presence of God where, according to Psalm 1611, there is fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Sometimes I think that we have this image when we read this passage in particular that, that the saints there before, that they're crying. The, the martyrs are weeping. They're not weeping. They've been given the crown of life. They have not been shortchanged in life. Their life has not been cut short. It has spanned exactly the length that God foreordained from the foundations of the earth, and they died in exactly the manner which God prescribed for them. They have not been wronged by God. They have graduated out of this life and into His presence. Paul said that to live is Christ and to die is gain. And these saints who are before the throne of God, beneath the altar, they have gained infinitely more in death than they ever received in life. So they're not to be pitied. They're to be envied. But they're not to be worshipped. Did you notice in Luke 21 when Jesus told his disciples, did you catch this? He told his disciples, you'll be hated You'll be persecuted, you'll be betrayed by those who love you most, and you will be put to death. Then he turns right around in the very next verse and he says, but not a hair of your head will perish. Did you catch that? How does that work? You're going to have your heads lopped off, but your hair is going to be fine. says the bald one. How does that work? How can they be put to death yet not have one hair of their head perish? What Jesus says only makes sense if their state in death is infinitely better than it was in life. Such that on the other side, having been persecuted, hated, betrayed, and slaughtered, they, they wake up on the other side and they said, not a hair of my head was touched. Don't be afraid to die for your faith. Death is gain for those who are in Christ. Fourth, as to God's vengeance for their death. The martyred saints cry out in a loud voice, verse 10, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell upon the earth? Now the martyrs here, they cry out not because they've been cheated out of life, but because the glory of God has been trampled by their death. An attack upon the messengers of God, the ambassadors of Christ, is an attack upon God Himself. And God will not fail to execute vengeance and wrath upon those who do. The U.S. government may allow their ambassadors to be killed without any retribution, but God will not. 
Because an attack on the ambassador is an attack upon the king. Judgment, wrath, and vengeance will come, but not before the full number of the saints are killed and the whole world is evangelized. Then God will vindicate his honor and that of his saints. Fifth, as to the application of their death. While the primary reference in this passage is most certainly to saints who are literally killed for their testimony of faith, I don't think it's stretching this passage to believe that application can be made to every saint who perseveres through the tribulation of this age. In other words, it would be wrong, I think, to read Revelation 6, 9 through 11 and conclude that it has nothing to say to the vast majority of you who will never face the kind of persecution that might result in your death. By the way, I'm hoping that as we move through Revelation, some of us will step out and enter into that kind of persecution. May God be pleased to call out, may the Lord of the harvest call out laborers into the most dangerous of vineyards from here at First Baptist Nixa. Having been equipped to go and preach and die from the book of Revelation. Would you pray with me for that? We want to send people out. But even if that's not you, even if your whole life is lived under the relative security, relative security of the United States and the freedoms that we cherish, I think this passage has something to say to you. I think that what is promised in these verses has application to all the saints in this age who persevere through the sufferings that do come to every one of us and who through those sufferings maintain their witness to the Word of God. Let me give you two reasons why I think this. Number one, the martyred saints are given a white robe. See that in verse 11? Well, look back to chapter 3, verses 4 through 5, and you'll see that Jesus promises a white robe to everyone at the church at Sardis who overcomes the tribulation in this age, not just those who die for their faith. And again, if you look at Revelation 9, or 7 rather, 9 through 14, you will see that everyone who is gathered around the throne, worshiping him who sits on the throne and the Lamb, are clothed in white robes. And if you look ahead to Revelation 19.8, you'll see that everyone who is invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb is clothed in a white robe, not just the martyrs. In other words, in Revelation, the white robe is given not just to those who die for their faith, but to those who persevere in faith through the tribulation of this world, remaining faithful unto death through cancer, through tragedy, through job loss, through the dissolution of a marriage, through any of the sufferings that come in this life. They remain steadfast through it unto death. They are granted a white robe as well. Second reason. In Revelation 20 and verse 4, we see two groups, and they are given the same privilege. Two groups. You see the martyrs, those who have been beheaded for the testimony to Jesus and for the word of God. They come to life after death, and they reign with Christ in heaven as they await his return. Together with another group, who are all those who have not worshipped the beast or its image and have not received the mark of the four, the mark of the beast on their foreheads or on their hands. See? 
two groups, all of them coming to life and reigning with Christ. The martyrs and all the faithful. See, martyrdom is just one of the ways that the saints overcome in this age. So if God wills for you to be among them, if it's God's plan for you, predestined plan from before the foundation of the world, that he's going to call you up out of this congregation and he's going to send you to some place where it's not safe to worship and you die for your faith, God be praised. Remain faithful unto death and he'll give you the crown of life. Revelation 2.10. But if that's not his will for you, and it's probably not his will for most of you, your call is still to persevere in faith through sufferings and tribulation while you bear witness to his word, to his judgment, and to his mercy in Christ. So maybe God's plan for you is to persevere through cancer. And if that cancer takes your life, you come in, you find out it's stage four, it's terminal, there's nothing we can do about it, how are you going to respond? Because you have a choice in that moment. You have a choice between responding like the martyrs and receiving the white robe, or responding like the rest of the world, which is to hold on to this world with everything that you've got because this world is where your hope is. I'm going to hold on to life just tooth and nail because I can't sing what we sang a few moments ago that this world has nothing for me. No, this world is everything for me. And I don't want to leave it, which tells you that your faith is here and not there. But if you receive that diagnosis, yes, in grief, you're humans, we're not robots. In grief and in sorrow, and we have the church gathering around us to pray, God, keep him faithful to the end. Keep him faithful to the end. And we're praying and striving and persevering together, and you remain faithful to the end. You'll be given the right right robe right alongside the martyrs. Persevere to the end, showing the world by your joy, even in suffering, that God is your portion, Christ is your treasure, and to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what Christians do. That's how Christians die from cancer. What does it say to the world if you die kicking and screaming? What does it say? Where's your hope? Your hope is getting left behind. And you have no hope in the future. It matters how you die. In summary then, let's summarize all of Revelation 6 up to this point. This age, between the first coming of Christ, okay, his ascension, and the second coming of Christ, his descension, this age, known in biblical terms as the last days, this age will be marked by conquest and wars, seals 1 and 2. By famine and plague and death, seals 3 and 4. It will be marked by the persecution and perseverance of the saints, seal five, who bear witness to the word of God and remain faithful unto death. And so these tribulations will come like birth pangs, like contractions increasing in frequency and intensity until the lamb breaks the seal on the sixth day and the day of wrath comes. Verse 12. 
When he opened the sixth seal, I looked, and behold, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth, and the full moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and the rocks, saying, fall on us, hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Verses 12 to 14 is just a collection of, of Old Testament prophecies which spoke of seismic and cosmic phenomena that accompany the great and terrible and final day of the Lord. The great earthquake appears again in Revelation 11, and 13, 11 13 and 16, 18, both of which are associated with the second coming of Christ. The sun turning black and the moon to blood comes from Joel 2.31 and was repeated by Jesus as a sign which would mark his imminent return at the end of the age. Matthew 24.29, Mark 13.24. The stars falling from the sky as figs from a tree in a great wind and the sky rolling up like a scroll are quotations from Isaiah 34.4, day of the Lord. The mountains and the islands Crumbling down comes from Isaiah 54.10 and Ezekiel 38.20. In other words, what John sees when the sixth seal is broken is Jesus Christ shaking the heavens and the earth as he prepares to return in judgment. And none can escape on the day of his coming. I want you to notice the change in scope from the first four seals. Those judgments were limited in their scope and their severity. Only a partial famine. Only a quarter of the earth. In this age, the judgment of God is mingled with His mercy and His patience, as it is during this age that the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world and a vast and innumerable multitude are gathered in from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation and are brought into this great redemption purchased by the Lamb. This is the age of grace. This is the age of mercy. But when he comes, when that sixth seal is broken, the day of grace will be over. The day of mercy will have come to an end and his patience will have been exhausted. The judgment which Christ brings is final and it is terrible. And the kings of the earth, the great ones, the generals, the rich, the powerful, and everyone slave and free, will fall under His wrath. My prayer at this moment, as we proceed on to the end of this message, is this. There are some of you here who will not stand on that day. And I pray that by the power of the Holy Spirit that you would taste of the terror of that day. For there is still an opportunity to have refuge and rescue. So God, open up our hearts and open up our eyes to see that when that day comes, there is no escape 
from the face of God and the wrath of the Lamb. And I pray that you would cause us to feel it. To feel just a taste of the dread that lies behind the words of those who try in vain to hide themselves from Christ in the caves and the rocks of the mountains. Come, Holy Spirit, and give us a taste of terror. The judgment that is unleashed upon the earth when the sixth seal is broken is total, it is comprehensive, it is exhaustive, and it is final. And it is terrifying. Such that men would rather die than face the burning wrath of the Lamb. And just as it was in the beginning, so it will be at the end. Just as it was in the fall, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and hid themselves among the trees of the garden. So now at the end of all things, sinful humanity still hides, preferring to perish in the rubble rather than come face to face with their God. Just try and wrap your mind around an event so terrible that the only way to describe it is with language like this. Say, is this a metaphor? Is this figurative? Is this symbolic? Are there really flames? Is it really hot? Does the worm really never die? Is is there always this eternal anguish? Is it symbolic? If it's symbolic, it's symbolizing something awful. It is dreadful, this day of wrath. It is no wonder that when the seventh seal is broken, John finds all of heaven watching in awestruck silence. Look at Revelation 8.1. When the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Which is noteworthy because from the very beginning of John's heavenly vision in chapter 4, the throne room has been filled with ceaseless praise of the four living creatures and the 24 elders and thousands upon thousands of the heavenly host. There has been a continuous cacophony of noise ringing in John's ears. But suddenly in the aftermath of the outpouring on the day of wrath, there is a deafening silence. For half an hour. Like the silence in the immediate aftermath of of a train wreck or a plane crash or some similar scene of mass carnage. It's as if all of heaven has taken in a collective (gasps) gasp at the sight of the unveiled wrath of God poured out upon the sin of man. If even the angels of heaven can't breathe when the wrath of God is poured out, how will you stand? And it is out of this deafening silence that seven angels appear and they prepare to blow seven trumpets and a whole other vision cycle is set to begin.
there's a question that we need to answer in closing. And that is, what's up with chapter 7? Why is there a chapter between the 6th and the 7th seal? Why did we skip from Revelation 6.17 to Revelation 8.1? What's going on in 7? I think Revelation 7 exists to answer the cry on the lips of the wicked at the end of Revelation 6. As they call out to the mountains and the rocks saying, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand Indeed, who can stand when the wrath of God is unleashed and all of mankind is brought to account for their sin and their rebellion and their cosmic treason against the king of the universe? When man's rebellion is crushed and the end has come, who can stand before the face of the thrice holy God and His risen and exalted Christ? Who can stand when earth and sky flee from His presence and the dead, great and small, stand before the throne and the books are opened and His eyes, like flames of fire, pierce through to the very core of your soul, revealing all of the dark, depraved wickedness within. Who can stand? And Revelation 7 comes in and says, the saints can. The servants of God who bear the seal of God on their foreheads, they can stand in the presence of God when the day of judgment comes. And that's exactly what you see them doing. Look at verse 9. This great multitude that no man can number from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. They are standing before the throne of God. Clothed in white robes and palm branches are in their hands. And the cry upon their lips is totally different from the cry that was on the lips of the wicked. Because they don't despise God. They delight in Him. They do not reject his sovereign rule. They rejoice in it. They do not hide from his face. They flee to it. They are not seeking refuge in the rocks of the mountains. They have taken their refuge in the rock of ages. And that's why they do not cry out in terror at the coming judgment of God, but they cry out in worship singing, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the question of the ages and the question of this morning is, are you among them? You're in one of two places. You're in Revelation 6, 17, or you're in Revelation 7, 9. There's no third alternative. So will you stand before the throne of God and sing the song of the redeemed? Will you? We will explore these two visions of Revelation 7 next week. But for now, the question is simply this. Will you be among those who hide in terror and in woe when God appears in Christ? Or will you gather around the throne in triumph and worship? How? How can you stand in the judgment when you know by the power and grace of the Holy Spirit the depth of your sin 
How do you get from Revelation 6, 17 to Revelation 7, 9? Look at 7, 13. Then one of the elders addressed me saying, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? And John said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne. That's how you get from 6.17 to 7.9. That's how you change from those who hide from the throne of God to those who gather around the throne of God from judgment to salvation. You wash your robes white in the blood of the Lamb. Whether or not you will stand in the day of judgment depends on whether you have washed your robes in the blood of Christ. How do you do that? You turn to Him in repentance and by faith you confess your sins and call upon His name. So which rock will you hide yourself in When the day of wrath comes, the rocks of the mountains won't work. Or the rock of ages. And that's what I invite you to do this morning. This is a salvation sermon. I invite you by faith. It's not a movement. It's not a physical activity. It is by God's grace The humbling of your heart before Christ and the crying out to Him. By faith, wash your sinful garments white in the atoning blood of Christ. Hide yourself in the rock of ages who is Jesus. Shelter yourself from the day of judgment in Christ. All of these are metaphors for saving faith. Seek refuge in His atoning grace. Then and only then will you be able to stand before the throne of God and sing together with all of the redeemed. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Let's pray. If that's you, if you need to get from Revelation 6.17 to 7.9 this morning, if God has been gracious to you to reveal to you the depths of your sin and your wickedness and the, and the danger that your soul is in being underneath the wrath of God, I want to give some words to your prayer. If you want to be saved from the wrath that is to come, and find refuge in the day of judgment. I want to give words to the cry of your heart. You listen as I speak over you one of the greatest hymns ever written in the English language, and you make these words your own. And God Almighty, by your grace and power of the Holy Spirit, I pray that you will hear from heaven and justify, wash, sanctify, cleanse white every repenting soul here. And if you don't know for sure which group you're in, you make this your prayer. Rock of ages, that's Christ, cleft for me 
Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin, my sin, the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. Not the labors of my hands could fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? These for sin could not atone. There's nothing that I can do. I have no recourse but your mercy and your free grace. Thou must save and thou alone. And so nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to thy cross I cling. Naked I come to thee for dress. Helpless I look to thee for grace. Foul I to thy fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Is that the desperate cry of your heart? Then cry to Christ. Flee to him. And you can say, while I draw this fleeting breath, when my eyes shall close in death, when I rise to worlds unknown and behold thee on thy throne, rock of ages cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. You pray that and Jesus will save.